1725, John Newton was born just on the outskirts of London, England. His father was a merchant captain for a ship that would travel two to three years at a time, bringing merchandise, taking merchandise. An only child, his mom was all he had growing up. His dad was raised in the faith, the Catholic faith, as a Jesuit who knew God in concept. His mom was a non-traditional follower of Jesus who wanted the, the truth of the faith but didn't want all of the, the, what she described as religious rhetoric that convoluted the relationship. At a young age, the age of seven, Newton's mother passed away from tuberculosis and for a season, young Newton was cared for by close friends until his father got back from one of his many voyages, his journeys. His dad would quickly remarry and almost immediately they would send young John Newton off to a boarding school trying to deal with the emotions of the hurt and the pain and the loss reeling from his childhood, Newton was often described as a nonconformist. He was an individual who challenged status quo. By the age of 19, he was seized by a group of individuals and forced into the Royal Navy where he was forced to serve in unruly conditions, despising his circumstances, convinced that he was going to fight the situations around him, he was often beaten and flogged. It got so desperate that young Newton almost tried to take his life at one point. He was discharged and thrown off of the Royal Navy ship and onto a slave trader ship. They literally traded one of the crew members of this slave trader's ship for Newton's life. Newton was then at a young age introduced to the life of slave trading and began to see the the money that could be had and given over to the allure, he committed his life to being about money and about traveling and about slave trading. He began to fall further and further away from the truth that he was brought up with as a child from his mother and ran long after the recklessness of the world. Because of his lifestyle and the the choices that he made, the, the positions that he found himself in, there were several times that Newton found himself near death. It wouldn't be until 1748 when John Newton was on the Greyhound, a ship carrying slaves from the African coast back toward England, that the, the ship would be overrun by storms and right in front of his eyes, one of his fellow shipmates would be tossed overboard and die at sea that Newton cried out to God. He cried out to God for his salvation. And it was in that moment that he faced a reckoning of his past, his brokenness, his choices, and the nature of who God was to him in that moment. 
crying out to God, asking for reprieve from the storm, he found that shortly thereafter, the storm began to subside. Committing his life to Christ at that point, he began to study the faith. He began to read the Bible. He began to read scholars of that era. As he began to study all the more, he wanted to learn what it meant to imitate Christ, but he was still he was still battling with self, one foot in the faith, one foot in the world. He would continue to run ships full of slaves until he was at sea and he was overcome with illness to the point where he had a stroke. And he realized in that moment that he had to give his full attention, his whole undivided attention over to God. Coming back from sea, he would leave behind this life of brokenness, this life of depravity, and he would run headlong into the faith. He would eventually become an ordained minister and would start off very humbly building up others around him, using his story to help them in their story where they were at. And in 17... 72, Newton was introduced to another young man who had just recently surrendered his life to Jesus and together they collaborated on things of spirituality and faith and Newton would turn to his journal and he would use poetry as a form of self-expression and began to pin this poem that was... uh, an epitaph of his life. It was a story of his story in poetry form. These words that he wrote down, these words to the story of his life would go on to be what we now know as the greatest hymn and arguably one of the most recognizable songs the world has ever known from any genre. He would write in this poem, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. He would go on to write more verses that would encompass his story. Today, we kick off a brand new series as we head into the Christmas season, a series that we have entitled Story, where we are going to look at the greatest story the world will ever know in the form of Jesus, a story that was given for others' stories, the most unlikely of stories, stories like John Newton, stories of individuals who ran as far and as fast away from the faith as they possibly could that were running aimlessly and recklessly. And it doesn't always, it doesn't always look like absolute depravity. Sometimes those stories of relentless recklessness can be found in the corner offices of corporate America, where on the outside, everything is going great, but in the inner recesses of a man's heart is defiance and brokenness and utter utterly being lost. Today, we're going to pick up the very first part of this series, and I could not be more excited for what I believe God wants to do in and through our time together today. I want to encourage you to find your Bible wherever it's at at home. 
And I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Ephesians. It's easily seven-eighths of the way through your Bible. You'll run through a collection of names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you'll run through Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, all morning together. As you guys are looking for that, I want to start our time in prayer today. Father, I thank you so much that you've given us this opportunity to gather collectively all over the place using the power of technology. I thank you for the ability to gather virtually. I thank you for our online community. And I pray for my brothers and my sisters, for the friends of the faith, for those that are watching all over the place right now, that you'd meet each one of us where we're at. You'd speak directly to our hearts and that you would move in us and take us where you want us to go intellectually and emotionally and relationally. Father, I pray as we encounter you now through your word, as your word is read, and as we meditate on your word, that as we encounter you, you will change our lives. Father, I pray that if there's anything in us today that would keep us from wholly recognizing your voice or surrendering to you, that you would bring that to our attentions, that we would give that over to you right now. And in full surrender, we would turn our affections toward you. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be received as a gift to you alone, Jesus. Amen. The Apostle Paul, the author of this letter to the church in Ephesus, is writing while he's sitting in prison in Rome. And he is writing to a group of Christians, both Jewish and Gentile Christians, and he's writing this manifesto. He's writing this declaration of the Christian faith, of his Christian faith. You know, this is one of the most unique letters in Paul's writings and in the New Testament. Many of the letters, most of the letters, in fact, will address areas in the Christian life where there's turmoil, where there's something stirring, something going on. And Paul or the other authors of these letters will have to admonish these followers of Jesus for poor behavior or give strong encouragement. This is a little unique. Paul writes this letter as a declaration of their faith, as a cornerstone of their beliefs. And he does something unique in doing so that we're going to find immediately as we jump into chapter 2, verse 1. And that's a retelling, a retelling for all of us of where we were before we encountered Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I pray that you'll take a, a moment just to acknowledge that space in your life where you were far from Jesus, where you didn't know Jesus, where you were living in recklessness and depravity, where you were pursuing the desires of your flesh. And then today we're going to recall and we're going to celebrate the moment in time, that space where we encountered Jesus and our lives were changed forever. It changed our story. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul is going to speak in an objective, plural pronoun. He is going to talk about the entire group, his audience, both Jews and Gentiles, these who have committed their lives to Jesus when he says, once, once you were dead, and I want you to pay close attention to the use of tense. 
This is past tense. He's speaking about what has taken place, not what is currently on their minds or in the near horizon, but this is where they've come from. He is reminding them what they have come out of. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. If we're not careful, we're going to run right past this and we're going to miss the significance of a double negative. You see, any type of disobedience to God is a sin, and we know that all sin separates us from God. The fact that the Apostle Paul takes this opportunity to remind his fellow followers of Jesus that they were not only disobedient, but they were lost in many sins, he is stressing, he is using verbal exclamation points to make them pay attention to just how far removed from the faith they were that they were reckless in their, their living, a double negative, pay attention, you were so far gone. I'm standing next to a barrel, a burn barrel here that is used to put garbage in and they'll usually put an accelerant in with the garbage and they'll light that fire and out of that will come dark smoke and nasty smells. And how many of us have felt often in our lives, too often in fact, that we have been at the bottom of the barrel. This is that double negative. This is that disobedience and many sins that Paul is retelling for this group of individuals. He says, you were once dead because, as a byproduct of your disobedience and your many sins. Now, still looking at the objective pronoun, he says, you, you used to live in sin. In other words, you made this a lifestyle. This wasn't just something that happened. This was a, a part of the way you chose to live your life, the way you thought, the way you spent your time, the way you spent your energy, the way you spent your money, the way you invested yourself, you invested yourself in a life of sin. This is living you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Ultimate equalizer here. You know, this, this verse right here does an amazing job of taking a broad brushstroke and painting this imagery that every one of us, regardless of race, creed, color, nationality, socioeconomic background, Age, gender, lifestyles, every single one of us has something in common. Every one of us, even the countless individuals that you and I have never met from the corporate office to the top of a heaping pile of garbage. And everywhere in between, every one of us shares this in common that we used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. All of us can identify with this recklessness, this brokenness, this despair. And here's what he says about this lifestyle. You used to live in this sin just like the rest of the world. Obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Now there's two things I want us to lean into quickly in this text. And the first is the usage of dimensions. Most of us, we don't know much beyond three dimensions. 
But through the string theory and multiple other bright minds, much smarter than myself, there are arguably more than a dozen dimensions, depending on the realm in which you're looking at them in. And we, we somehow become so myopic, so focused on what we can see and what we can experience that we cannot see beyond that. If we can't touch it, if we can't taste it, or if we can't smell it, or if we can't hear it, if we can't interact with it, we seemingly cease to allow it to exist. Yet that doesn't mean that it's not real. It doesn't mean that it does not exist. I don't know that any of us would argue that there is a moon, that there is stars, that there are other hemispheres, that there are other galaxies, that there are other planets. Yet none of us have ever really seen them. We've never really experienced them beyond what others have shared with us. Yet us but, but, but we still, we, we, we recognize that there's something beyond us, something that's greater than this, something that, that, that's out there. This is true for first century individuals as well. They recognized that there was something greater than themselves, something beyond themselves. It was in a spiritual realm, a supernatural realm. And the Bible actually talks about this being a battle that's being waged, that our battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's not against the things that we can touch, taste, hear, smell, feel, and experience. But there's actually a a supernatural battle that's being waged for our very souls. The Apostle Paul, speaking of multi-dimensions... He says, you are obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts. Now that word hearts here, we've talked about this previously, but I want to spend just a second with that again. It literally is the epicenter of the human being. It represents the mind, the will, and the emotions of an individual. It is the place where life is sustained, not just physical life, intellectual life, relational life, emotional life. Life and spiritual life. And what Paul is saying here is that this devil, this commander of the powers of the unseen world is at work in the epicenter of the lives of those who refuse to obey God. It's when we are presented with an opportunity for truth versus lie, for good or evil, and we choose willingly, knowledgeable, and, and intentionally to knowingly to, to, to pursue the things of the earth, the things of our carnality, the things of our flesh. This doesn't just happen. We don't just kind of sin. We don't just sin a little bit or sin on accident. There are two types of sins, sins of commission that we knowingly and willingly commit. There are also sins of omission, things that we know that we should do that we do not do. In either and or both instances, these are conscious decisions or these are choices that are made or are not made that lead us to sin. It's a choice. We have human responsibility. We have free will. We have a choice to make. So every one of us by the end of this message is going to be presented with the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But in the end, as God illuminates our minds and as he stirs in our hearts, there has to come a moment in time where we make a conscious decision, a choice with what we will do with what the Lord is doing in us. In verse three, now he goes from this objective pronoun and he's going to make it a personal pronoun. And I, I, I point this out because I want us to understand what Paul's doing here. 
On the surface, he's talking broad brushstroke about all of their lives. But in order to, to speak directly to the matter at hand, he is going to now introduce himself into the story. There's this narrative that he's painting about this reckless lifestyle, about these choices that are far from God. And now going from an objective pronoun, he uses a personal pronoun to use his own life, his own examples, his own story as an example of someone who knows all too well firsthand this life apart from Jesus. You say, well, why is this important, pastor? And I would tell you that if you read the early part of Acts, you'll see. You'll be introduced to a man named Saul from a community named Tarsus, a highly educated individual, a well-respected man, a man of position, a man of power, a man of authority. He's a, a Pharisee. He is a leading Pharisee at that. He has gone out of his way to get rid of, to annihilate anyone who was following Jesus. Saul of Tarsus was there when Stephen was martyred for his faith. Saul of Tarsus would go on and he would get legal capabilities to go throughout Damascus and arrest and even kill people who were following Jesus. This man used his power, his intellect, his position to attain the things of his flesh, his fleshly desires. He uses this personal pronoun to say, look, all of you are far from Jesus, but you're not alone. All of us. He's using his story as part of a greater story. So now, now it's not just a collective, hey, remember when you used to live like this? But he's saying, look, I know what it's like to be far from Jesus and to live recklessly. My story, I know my story. And here's a part of my story. All of us in our stories, we used to live that way. What is that way? Well, we used to follow the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. It's incredible the way Paul uses these adjectives and emotions to describe the real feeling, not just the act of, but the real feeling of sin. Let's be honest, there are real feelings and strong feelings that are associated and tied with sins. We have strong feelings associated with sexual depravity. We have real strong emotions tied to alcohol and substance abuse. We have real strong emotions and feelings when it comes to the way we, we think about money or possessions or people or anger. Whatever, whatever the case may be, it's tied to an emotion as well. And most of us, if we're honest, far too many of us make emotionally charged decisions that lead us even further into sin. Our stories are often byproducts of decisions that we've made emotionally. And the Apostle Paul speaks directly to that. He speaks right to the heart of these emotions. He says, all of us used to live that way, following, willingly choosing the passionate desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. Who has a sinful nature? Well, I do. 
certainly my wife does. My children certainly do. All of us have sinful natures. We were born with sinful natures because of the fall of man. Every one of us is born into sin. The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, for all of us have sinned and we've fallen short. We haven't made the cut. We've fallen short of God's glory. And Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of that sin is death. In other words, because of our sinful nature, because of our choosing to pursue long after the sinful natures of the flesh, it leads to death. But, but, verse 3, the second half, by our very nature, we were, past tense, still using personal pronoun to talk about the byproduct of that sin. We were subject to God's anger, his wrath, just like everyone else. There is no exemption. Every single one of us is subject to God's anger and wrath. And he's not angry at us. He's angry at the sin in us. Verse 4. And if I could encourage you right now to grab us uh, something to write with, highlight these two words. But God... Somebody needed to hear that right now. But God, you're dealing with brokenness. But God, you're dealing with fear of this pandemic. But God, you're dealing with relational loneliness. But God, you're, you're dealing with unemployment. But God, you're dealing with with physical ailments, but God, you're dealing with, with, with a, a, a losing of yourself in light of everything going on around you, but God, you feel lost in the, the voices of your head, the voices of social media, but God, all the politics of the United States are crazy. There's wars being waged everywhere, but God, in the middle of all that we have going on in through and around us, the Apostle Paul, who uses this objective pronoun and now a personal pronoun to talk about how wrecked we were in our stories, reminds everyone but God, and he's going to give three quality traits, three characteristics of God right now that change our story. Write these down in your Bible as we go along. Write down these three characteristics of God. But God is so rich in mercy. That word rich in the original language literally means to have an exorbitant amount, abundantly more that can even be quantified. Think about that. Think about opening up your, your bank statement online right now and you, you opened up the bottom line to see what your net dollar amount is in your account and the numbers just kept going, they kept going, they kept going. It's infinite, it's exorbitant, it's greater than anything that you can quantify. This is the richness that Paul speaks of. This is the richness that the word of God speaks to and it says of God's nature, of his character, God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much, verse five, that even though, even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ 
from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. What are the three characteristics that I speak of? Well, the first one is mercy. The second one is love. And the third one is grace. Now, we don't have enough weeks in this series for me to spend unpacking each one of these words. This could become a series in and of itself. But I want you to think about those three words in the context of the the human psyche and the human soul, the decisions that we've made where we've been at the bottom of the barrel, lost, hopeless, feeling reckless, staring up, seeing light sometimes at the other end of the tunnel, but feeling so far removed from that light that we could never make it to the other side. And in the moment, in a moment, we realize that God has exorbitantly more than we could ever quantify mercy and love and grace. What does that mean for us? Well, mercy means that we don't get the punishment or the ramifications of our actions that is owed us, that is justly due us. There is mercy that wipes it away. What is the love? Well, this love in particular in the original language is agape. And agape is a kind of love that can only be experienced through the person of Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life, who died a sinner's death, though sinless, perfect, who gave himself over as a substitution for you and for me. The death that awaits us, that awaited us because of our brokenness, our sinfulness, Jesus stepped in and he took on himself as though he were the one who had done it. And then he was wrapped in traditional burial cloths and he was buried into the side of a borrowed tomb and he would be there for three days until he would conquer death so that you and I might have life. Why would he do that? Because he loves us. That is the kind of love that gives without exception, without merit, and without the ability to be returned. It's a kind of a love that can only be experienced through the person of Jesus Christ. And the third thing is his grace. This is an easy way for me to remember grace, what grace is. God's God's riches, which we've just talked about, God's riches at Christ's expense. Even in our stories, even in our lives, when we find ourselves at the bottom of the barrel, reckless, broken, hurting, and lost, we are guaranteed, we are promised, we have the hope of these three characteristics of God that he is merciful, that he is loving, and that he has grace for us. The Apostle Paul says this is what he's done for us, for you and for me. All of us collectively in our stories of brokenness, he's provided mercy, love, and grace. And he reminds them in parentheses in the middle of verse 5, it is, only, it is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Friends, I want to let you know this morning, this right here, this single-handedly separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. This verse 
Every other religion the world over, every other moral religion, every other philosophical religion, every other idea of morality and life here and thereafter is all contingent on how good we are. That in the end, you do more good than you do bad. And that Buddhism, as an example, that as you go from one life and you're reincarnated to another life, you actually take almost like a a zero-interest credit card, but with eternal interest, you roll over the choices you made previously into your next life, and you are now having to make up for the sins of your past, your present, so that you can hopefully meet some standard of goodness that would take you to a state of nirvana. Or in other religions, when you stand before whatever your deity, the idea is that you will have done more good deeds in your life than you will have bad deeds. But the reality of eternity is that all our deeds are like filthy rags, the scriptures describe. They are like filthy rags before God. And there's nothing that we can do because not any of us is good. The Bible says, no, not one of us is good. Not even one of us. The apostle Paul, whose story is unlike any other story I've ever personally experienced, A man who longingly pursued Jesus with everything that ultimately cost him his life, did good to everyone, could never make up for the sins of his past. There was no atonement outside of one. Not one thing, one. And that is Jesus Christ. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. Now we're speaking still in past tense, but of future Hope, you have been saved. The first three verses, it tells us of who we were. Then Paul introduces himself as who he was. And these characteristics of Christ that have set him straight and who he is now. And now we're going to see, we're going to see this transformation that begins to take place in Paul's story. We're going to see this transformation that takes place in the church in Ephesus in the stories of those who are represented in this letter. Verse six says, for he, God, raised us from the dead. Now, now think about this, this graveyard imagery that the apostle Paul is using. He could have used anything to make an illustration, but he is choosing to, to talk about the graveyards, the tombs, the burial cloths, the, the myrrh and the oils and the, the incense and the things that were used in celebrating someone's life, that they were dead, that they were really dead. There is no coming back from the dead except there is in Christ. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Because of our relationship to Christ, we become co-heirs and he places us with himself relationally forever. Verse seven, so God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. This verse is the hallmark verse of this entire series. Ephesians chapter two, verse seven, this verse. This is every one of our life verses. Those of us who are pursuing Jesus, 
who have been made aware of the sins, the faults, and the failures that have separated us from God, who have believed on Jesus for salvation, who have confessed with our mouths, who have repented of our brokenness and sins, and who have surrendered our lives to him. This is our life verse. All of us, Ephesians 2, 7. This is our story verse. This is where we get this whole series. Let me read it again and explain. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. In the nation of Israel, as God would time and time and time again deliver his people from the hands of their enemies, doing the the supernatural, the miraculous, God would would have the people build an Ebenezer. He would have them erect this monument that would serve as a constant reminder of how their stories changed forever because of the person of God at work in their lives. And there are are seemingly countless of these examples in the Old Testament. Some of my favorite, one of my favorites is when Abram goes up onto the side, Abraham is up on the side of a mountain and he is asked to sacrifice his son and there is no other sacrifice. And in the middle of his obedience, God shows up and radically delivers him, spares his son's life. And God asks Abraham to erect a monument and there on that mountain, it is remembered and known as the place where God provides Another one is when the the Israelites are being led by Joshua across the river and halfway through, the priests will go back and they will take these stones and they'll grab them from the middle of this, this water that has ceased because of the power and the authority of God. And as they come out of it, they will erect this monument, this Ebenezer. Jacob is another example. There are so many of these amazing examples of these Ebenezers, these, these mile markers, these hallmarks of an individual's life and their faith where they can look back on and remember. And in the case of the Israelites being delivered through the water, God tells the nation of Israel, you will tell your family and your family's family and the families, the generations to come that as you walk by collectively and you see what God has done, let it serve as a reminder of how God God was faithful and how God delivered and how God met you in the middle of your mess and he changed your life forever. Ephesians 2, 7. I want to sum it up to you this way. I've shown you this previously here at Reach Church, but I want to say it again. I want to show it again. Here's a a living example of Ephesians 2, 7. A personal pronoun of how our lives can be summed up. What Paul is saying is, guys, let's remember that this is who we were, that we encountered Jesus. This is who we are. And because of who he is, this is the promise of who we will be. That our lives are hallmarks. Our lives are monuments. Our lives are an Ebenezer for all of those around us to be able to peer at, to look at, and to see the goodness of God, to see the grace of God, to see the love of God, to see how God has rescued us and restored us. Our lives are to serve as these Ebenezers. 
Why? So God can point to us in all future ages as examples for everyone else of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for those who are united with Christ Jesus. And then we are left with this promise. Verse eight, God saved you by his grace when you believed. When you chose to acknowledge in your head and receive in your heart. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Think about this imagery. Think about this. As the Apostle Paul continues to share the nature of this amazing transformation that takes place in their stories. Still talking about their lives and his own story of salvation and redemption. The Apostle Paul paints this brilliant word picture. He takes a verbal canvas and he stretches it out. And he begins to to take these beautiful brushes filled with color and life and energy. And he paints on this canvas of our human lives this understanding that we, those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have experienced the saving knowledge of Christ in us, that we are his masterpiece. Paul didn't describe us as a piece of art. That would have been great. He didn't say that we were just one of the many paintings in this God-sized gallery. No, no, no. What Paul does is Paul paints this beautiful imagery for you and for me, and he calls us God's masterpiece. Now, I'm no art aficionado. I don't really have much creativity when it comes to drawing and, and painting. But I've been to enough museums in my life that you recognize that in each and every museum is a hallmark. It's something that they are recognized for. My wife and I, in recent years, we've really liked going to Washington, D.C. In fact, it's probably one of my favorite places in the United States. I could spend days, days on end, walking around Washington, D.C. and going to the different monuments and hallmarks and libraries and museums, mostly because it's free and I've got a huge family. But as you walk into each museum, there is something with script on it that is going to point you to the hallmark, to, to, the, to the thing that they are known for, the Smithsonian Museum, whatever, the, the Space Museum, whatever it is, there's something that is set apart from everything else. Everything else is great, but there is one thing that is so unique that it is considered their masterpiece. And that masterpiece is there for everyone to marvel at the creator and what he made. 
The curators will go into these museums and they'll make sure that they are pristine. They'll have armed security guards around the museum making sure that you can observe and that you can admire, but you can't touch. Why? Because it's set apart as special, as unique. It's there for us to observe, to admire. That is the imagery. That is the word choice that the Apostle Paul uses when he is describing you and me. He doesn't say broken, torn canvas. He doesn't say worn out canvas. He doesn't say wrecked canvas. He doesn't say one of many. He doesn't say a a, a print, but an original, a unique masterpiece. And that our lives, we are a living masterpiece because of God at work in us and now through us. Our lives are a masterpiece for others to marvel at, not to admire how good we are, but to be used as conduit to point people to Jesus, to give attribution where it belongs to Jesus, to use as a visual illustration, as a verbal illustration, and as a living illustration that this is who I once was, a wretched man, lost, broken, blind, depraved, and in utter despair. And that Jesus met me in the middle of my mess and my madness. And as I surrendered my life to him, my life changed forever. And now to the glory of God and for the benefit of others, my life is to be used as an illustration, as a story for others so that they too can experience the loving knowledge and grace of Jesus Christ. That they too can know what it looks like and it feels like to be God's masterpiece. Amazing grace. In the 1700s, a man who had lived most of his life in absolute brokenness, chasing the desires of his flesh and living from one near-death experience to another, would encounter Jesus while sitting on the ship they called Greyhound, full of slaves, broken and battered by the wind and the waves. John Newton, in that moment, having recognized the state of his life and the deficits cries out to God, save me, save me, save me, save me. In his faithfulness and his goodness, God will restore his soul and he will change his circumstances. John Newton will go on in 1772 to sit down and to write a reflection of his life in a poem. And it is amazing to me that the words of this song that we're about to sing together, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. 
It's amazing to me, centuries removed, how God continues to allow our stories to be the story that God will use to change someone's history for all eternity. My story, your story, our stories collectively, that if we will fully surrender our lives to him, we can experience his mercy, his love, and his grace. We can know the fullness of his restoration. And it doesn't stop there. God, who is so rich, so faithful, so abounding in these things, mercy, love, and grace, will use your story to be the story that changes history for someone's eternity. You get to be his Ebenezer. You get to be his hallmark. You get to be his landmark. You get to be his masterpiece. May it begin with me.